0: Well, hello everyone, and welcome to episode 7 of Switch of Play with myself, Mark Simpson, and good evening, Mickey Barron as well.
1: Good evening, Mark. Um, Really looking forward to tonight's episode. Um, A man that I spent a lot of time working for, but not really knowing that well, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I I didn't have a lot of conversations with him over the years when I was definitely as a player. I, I did more when I moved into the coaching side, but as I say, a lot of time under his sort of ownership of the club, really, but not that many in-depth conversations. So I'm really looking forward tonight to, to hearing what he's got to say.
0: I suppose there was that respect there at the time, and, and even more so looking back, you know, in football, things can be a bit rocky, calm the waters can be choppy at times. But Ken and under IOR, it was all very steady and consistent, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, I think, I think they made it that way with the way they ran the football club. And I think... As a player, he, he, it was it was brilliant because you didn't see anything that was going on behind yeah. the scenes. And and I know certain members of staff were frustrated that they had to jump through hoops to get anything. But that's the way he ran his business. And, and that's all, he was always going to do that with his football crew. And I think as soon as he got on board with the way he ran things, the, the better it was always going to be for the manager, the coach, whoever it is, um, to to get along. Because he was not going to change his ways.
0: Yeah, it's going to be interesting. We're going to try and take them through, you know, the the whole journey from from buying the club through all the way through Cardiff and uh, getting back into League One after that, and then all the things that happened before the, the you know the takeovers and and eventually leaving the club. It is going to be fascinating. It's going to be completely. I think we had our work cut out to
1: be fair to follow Joel Porter after last week, but yeah, the potential to do that. I think I think why is the big question mark for me? I think why did the club in the first place? Mm-hmm. Why choose Article and then why did they decide that they'd had enough and leave? You know, I think when you speak to fans, that's questions that they always ask me and I would love to ask Ken. So if we can get that conversation tonight and get some answers, um, and as you say, all the other things in between, uh, it'll be fascinating listening.
0: And uh, have you had a good week as well, Mick? I know we're trying something different, experimenting a little bit with your
1: internet connection tonight. Yeah, I've been told that Chester Street's a poor internet area, so um, I'm, I'm going to either have to upgrade the internet or uh, I've tried headphones on my phone tonight. So, so far, so good. I've, okay. got, my laptop, I've got my laptop on and standby, <laughs> I just think it is.
0: People were chuckling that you were getting uh, you coming in and out from Chesley Street, but Joel, crystal
1: clear from South Australia. I know, I came off when I came off, I spoke to Nicky and I was like, I just don't understand, I'm like 20 miles away from Simo. (laughs) (laughs) I can't get a decent internet connection yet. Joel's 20 hours away and he's all (laughs) right. It must be the cold in Australia, because he looked cold. He did look cold.
0: uh, (laughs) Great feedback for that episode, to be fair, as well.
1: Yeah, it was brilliant. I think what what was really, and it it blew me away at the time, actually, was how honest he was about he shouldn't have left the club. I thought... It was a no-brainer at the time. I know he, he sent to me, he spoke to me about it, but I never once questioned about well, did he really want to go. It was just mm-hmm. you've got a chance of a brilliant club back in Australia and obviously all the perks to go were living in Australia. And it was it was quite emotional actually listening to him talk it the way he did. And, back, yeah. yeah, and 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 saying that he wished he'd stayed and, and that would, would have helped him at the time and and probably helped him pursue a career in coaching as well. So yeah, it was a brilliant episode. And and uh, every time, the feedback's been brilliant. But for Joel, I think you could have done another hour, two hours, and, and everyone would have enjoyed
0: it. Welcome to Switch of Player, Mr. Ken Hodcroft. Good evening, Ken.
1: Good evening, everybody.
0: And uh, we're thrilled to have you on. Um, I, I'll be honest, when we asked you, I wasn't sure whether it would be up your street. But We're really thrilled to have you on, and and we're looking forward to you know chatting and having some uh, some good you know thinking about the good times that we had at Hartlepool United over the years.
2: Well, you know me with the media, I'm not going to tell you anything, so (laughs) (laughs) this this podcast isn't going to last very long.
0: (laughs) I have to be honest, Ken, I was a little bit nervous tonight because I haven't got my pin badge on, but I hope that's all right now.
2: Yeah, well, you haven't got your tie on either.
0: Um, but yeah, Ken. Obviously, we, 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 you know, we live in a strange world, don't we? It's starting to get more normal uh, as the weeks go by. But how, how has things uh, that have happened in the world affected you and and, and, the, and your place in the world?
2: Yeah, well, obviously, this uh, coronavirus is pretty serious stuff, and uh, you know, people need to take it very, very serious. Unfortunately, there's the few that aren't. But um, with regard to myself, it's you know, I live out in the countryside in Northumberland, so we've got to find somebody to social distance from. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite difficult. Uh, odd sheep passes us, but you know we let him go. Um, but in the next village, um, about nine miles from us, obviously that's a bit more active, and uh, I'm part of the uh, uh, volunteers to help deliver the morning newspapers to all the right. people between where I live and down in the village. So it's about a mile, nine mile sort of paper round um which we used to do and try and deliver to the farms and everything but that was too much so now we just have a couple of drop-off points where the people can get their neighbors to bring the paper in or help them um but it is a bit ironic because i remember i started being a paper boy when i was a kid and and here i am ending my life as a paper boy so i've I've achieved (laughs) nothing in between
0: apart from a paper boy then what what keeps you busy these days ken obviously the oil industry
2: no, no. I mean, um, to tell you the truth, IOR will be closed probably by the end of this year. Um, we've really just got a couple of people left there now. Right. Um, I, probably, I, I, think, I think you and the fans know, but our main income was Yemen, um, although we had lots of operations. But the main oil producing region we had was Yemen. And we produced there for 15 years, which actually take us on to why we ended up wanting having to sell Hartlepool in 2015 so we got the license in 2000 and, and it ran out in 2015 right. and uh, and we actually left early because of the civil war and everything so after that time really our other operations uh, weren't generating the income that the oil fields were and so we really just got in the process of closing things down we closed down our singapore office uh, about eight months ago um the dubai office is closing houston's pretty close so the places where we had operations are all generally closing now um, because just after 2015 there was an oil drop in price a couple of years ago and so that was pretty devastating and um and of course now when this new um oil price dropped and um, we just made the decision, well, that, that's it. We're not going to continue in the business. So, right. what I'm doing right now is really closing things down, and um, uh, which is quite difficult in some places uh, like Dubai and that with a with virus, you know, it, 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 it's, it's difficult to do this. So, a bit of it's on hold, but I suggest we should be finished everything uh, end of the year or early next year.
0: And what will the future hold?
2: I'm going to deliver papers. <laughs> uh, no, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, it, 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 that's probably it. I would imagine um, there, there, there won't be too much more for me to do. I mean, we always have a few legal things. We've got a few court cases going on, uh, particularly the dispute from leaving Yemen early um, and they're still uh, going on. So I'll be involved in that because, you know, courts and that, they take a long time and there was some of our kit and equipment left down there we couldn't get, and so there's a lot of battling's going on. But other than that, no, it'll it'll just be pretty much uh, keeping an eye on the football scores.
0: Absolutely. Well, that brings us very neatly onto the football. And if I can take you back to the to the very start of the IOR story in terms of Hartlepool United, um, the question you must get asked, Lords, and the question that Mickey, even when we were speaking about before you came on, was the same. Why did IOR well, in the first place? I heart United. What was in it for IOR and how did it come about?
2: Yeah, well, um, uh, despite what the media have said over the years that the football club is owned by this Norwegian guy, uh, it, it isn't, it never was. Um, it was owned by IOR and he was a shareholder, but he didn't own the club. And uh, but what started it off uh, it, the story was, uh, uh, myself and in, uh, in, in Larson, Berger Larson, who uh, uh, I met at university in 72, we became friends and that, and then we ended up doing business together. We actually went to the Newcastle United-Barcelona game in the European Cup, um, and I don't know if you guys recall it, but Newcastle actually beat Barcelona and Australia, yeah. scored a couple of goals, or whatever, yeah. three goals, and we went to that game. And it was actually quite unusual for him to be over, but we, we might have been down doing a Harlepool move. Anyway, we went to the game, I presume it was midweek. And of course, Newcastle was buzzing when we came out. And uh, some of you know, Larson, he's always had, you know, sort of long blonde hair and that, tall Norwegian. And we're coming out of the, uh, the ground, it, it, walking down the ramp at St. James's for the exit. And everybody's milling around. And this little kid come running up to him, with his autograph book and said, can I have your autograph? You know, you're the manager of Barcelona. And he went, no, I'm not. And he looked at me and he says, do I look like a manager? And I said, well, wearing that coat, you do. Because if you recall in those days, the managers always had to have a big coat, didn't they? And, and you know, I mean, Michael Allison, Allison, I think, started off with his big fur collars. And, and Larson had this big brown coat, which was, you know, typical football manager's coat. And there he was looking foreign with his blonde hair and that, and and he said to the little kid, no, I'm not manager of Barcelona. So we carried on walking down and we went to Chinatown and we hadn't had a meal and, of course, we had a few bottles of wine and that. And he goes to me, he goes, "Uh, you know, I think we should get into this football business. (laughs) And I says, well, what what do you mean? He says, well, he says, you know, the money's going to be there, the sky's starting up, because this was what? This would be 96, 97 or 98, whenever the, the match was. And he says, Sky's just going, football's the in thing, it's the way to be. And I went, well, what do you mean? He says, well, we should look at getting involved with the football club. And I went, well, I'm not getting involved with the club, I says, because I know who's going to end up doing it and it'll be me. (laughs) And secondly, um, IOR will be the one that will fund it and buy it, but I'm not going to get involved in Scottish football. It's just a waste of time. And he went, no, 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 we need it here in Newcastle. And I says, Well, we're not going to buy Newcastle United. And he went, No, 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 no. We've got to find something that's related to the oil business. And so I had to look around and, uh, cut a long story short, I looked in the Sunday Sun and there was an article of Harold Hornsey. And I read between the lines that Harold had done his best, rescued the club, but I could tell he'd sort of reached his limit on his personal investment and all that. And although he didn't say it. Yeah. And I looked at Harleypool. And uh, I thought, well, how can that be linked with oil? But then I realized that we had Abel Offshore there. And Abel Offshore was the only place at the time, I think in Europe, or at least in the UK, that was licensed to dismantle and take care of all the nasty bits uh, of, of oil rigs. And uh, so I, I called Larson up and I said, look, this town, oh, I know, Harleypool. He said, I went down there when I was at university and all that, and I said, well, look, there's this ground, this yard able that can break up oil rigs. And we had an oil rig which was due to finish producing in the North Sea, or an oil platform, not an oil rig, an oil platform that looked like it was going to be decommissioned, i.e., taken away and demolished. And so in that time, Greenpeace were kicking up a fuss about all this dumping stuff in the Atlantic and all that. And the partners in this platform were DNO. British Gas, Texaco, and Unocal, big American company, and Unocal wanted to leave the North Sea, and DNO had five percent, and, uh, and we'd done a deal with them where they could all go to sleep, and and DNO would look after the field and get the lost drops of oil, oil out of it, but they they didn't want to know. But Texaco, British Gas were very concerned about when the rig finished, that Greenpeace would be boycotting the tech pe- petrol stations. British Gas would be boycotted and in trouble as being a terrible, nasty company that dumped an oil rig in the Atlantic Trench. Um, and I said, and if we bring this oil field, the oil rig into Hartlepool, um, you know, we'll have Greenpeace and the locals all complaining, why are you bringing the nasties to Hartlepool? Which happened when Abel brought in the ghost ships, if you remember, mm-hmm. into Hartlepool. Um, and so I said, look, if we, if we buy this football club, then when we say we're bringing an oil rig into decommission, I said, the people of Hartlepool aren't going to complain because we're bringing jobs to Hartlepool. And, uh, and Greenpeace won't stand a chance because the, the locals who are going to get employed and the business we're bringing are going to say, hey, don't touch these guys. They own our football club. Yeah. So that's the reason why we targeted Hartlepool. And the second reason was, of course, IOR, with the approval of the Inland Revenue, could buy that football club and integrate it in is part of the company so the losses from iowa we could offset against the profits
0: mm-hmm.
2: in the oil so in effect the oil paid via the tax system is um, a tax deduction because hartleypool was a, a, a company and to get that approval uh, because obviously the question is why is an oil company buying a football club yeah. um we had to show why it was there and also why we we we, it would help ior grow because don't forget ior just started in 96 and of course we said well to grow the business we do corporate entertaining we do shirt sponsorship it'll be on the tv all over the world and blah 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 and that will help the business grow bring more income into the uk create more jobs and all that so the inland revenue said fine We, we will approve the oil company buying We could have bought the club anyway. They weren't saying we couldn't buy it. But the key was to get it integrated into the company that the losses could be sustained. Not we expected to make losses all the time. We're hoping to make a profit. But at the time, we knew Hartlepool was going to be a loss maker. So that's why we got involved in in buying Hartlepool United.
1: So, Ken, it was obviously successful for the football club. Was it successful for your oil company? Yeah,
2: it was, was, Mickey, because... um, at the end of the day we had a massive incentive not to bring this platform in to decommission in 2000 and we managed to do a lot of innovative techniques to keep the oil flowing so that helped the uk economy the british government were pleased with this because we had to get approval from the british government on all this uh mandelson was very pleased because he was the mp for hartlepool of course and he was also uh, another reason we bought Hartlepool is that at the time he was in charge of the Department of Energy and It was the Department of Energy whose approval we needed to back to take over the platform in the North Sea and so we had to meet Mandelson and we had to meet everybody to get all these approvals and uh, So we actually to decommission this platform was it 1998 prices was 60 million pounds and our argument to the British government was, if we can prevent this platform being decommissioned, then we're going to save the UK taxpayer 60 million. Because don't forget, the oil companies don't pay the 60 million. That 60 million is a deduction from their profits, right? right. They make profit selling oil, but hey, we've got a cost here of 60 million, so it's deducted. So the taxpayer, in effect, pays for it, uh, to an extent, not, not 100%. Um, so by presenting all this to the British government, Blair was very keen to not have this platform demolished and decommissioned on his watch. And so what they said at the time was, well, can you push the life of the platform out because Labour are in it for five years and we may not get reelected? Well, as you know, Labour did get reelected and we kept the platform going. So it was very good for Hartlepool. Uh, In that, that kept IOR interested in the club, and then we had the sponsorships on the shirts, and we brought people to the football club, showed them around the town. They then invested in IOR, so it was a win-win situation for the town, for the government, and for IOR uh, in particular. And and that that was maintained, I would say, probably, probably into about two thousand and twelve or thirteen. So it was a good twelve years of sponsorship and generating business for Hartlepool area in the UK so win-win
0: in in terms of the football what were your aims when you became chairman of Hartlepool I know when you when you flew into Newcastle Airport that first day to go down to Hartlepool and and you did an interview with a journalist what were the what were the aims in your head for for Hartlepool United at that point
2: well well, my aim was not to get involved in the football club when we bought it (laughs) Uh, but I knew I'd be delegated it, which is why we set it up how we did where IOR overviewed it and and, and we found Russ to basically run it on behalf of IOR. So, the um, you know, I really didn't – I would I, I always said that if, if it wasn't for the oil business, I'd love to do Hartlepool full-time, right? So I, I really wanted to get involved in the football. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't want to get involved because I knew it would take up a lot of my time and I, I didn't know the idea of getting a chief exec because I knew nothing about football um, and it was very very uh, concerning that I was going to end up running a football club 24-7 and running the oil business 24-7 and I was like you know but but it turned out okay because you know we got Russ and, 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 and basically I found out that the you know, once we went to everybody at the football club, we knew the people that were there and we selected and we hired um, were quite capable of, of running it. And, you know, we can come to that. But um, once I realized that, you know, it was going to help the oil business, and I decided I had to put a lot of effort in to make it a success. And so the aim I had personally was one to to, to, to basically um, follow through Harold Horns's wishes. And Harold was very strict on the sale and he, and he really, was worried we were going to come in, as we know how it happens, strip the assets, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just wipe out the football club. And he didn't want that doing to his home team. And and I took a lot of convincing saying, Harold, we're not in it to strip that. We don't need to strip the assets. We're in it for business. And we want Hartlepool to benefit our business just as much as we want our business to benefit Hartlepool United. Um, so I decided I had to put a big effort into it, and we kept Harold on as a consultant for a year. But um, my aim was really to see if we could really improve and try and take the club up into at least aim for the for I think it was a second division. Then were we were in the third division. I lose track of the yeah, division. Yeah,
0: the bit. third division at that point. Yeah, in the
2: third. So uh, I think we we all had an aim to if we could get in the second. Because when we took him over, Bull was in. We were on the second, fa- the second page of CFAX, which is... Uh, Not a good place Frankie, to be. If you remember Frankie Bags, um, he, he always classed success by, in those days, you remember when the game's finished, you watch the tables on CFAX. And uh, they split the table in, I think, what, the top 10 or 12 were on page one and the second on page two. And, and, and Frankie always yet, used to say to me, Ken, if you can get me onto the first page of factor ah, that'll be great, you know. Um, so my aim was to try and get into uh, better than that and, and try and get into the next division. That's what we tried. Ken, can
1: I ask you a question? And, and, and not for one minute, do I want this to sound condescending or cheeky in any way? What was your knowledge, like football knowledge, before you came to the football club on, like... Football on the field, were you just a fan? Did you do what I mean? What was your what basically was your knowledge of football? Well, we
2: used to be manager of Barcelona, like that kid said. (laughs) So, apart apart from that, oh, yeah, well, uh, yeah, we got a bit of knowledge from that, you know. Um, (laughs) no, I mean, I I was a fan, I I really had no interest in the lower divisions apart from the fact I always used wherever I was in the world. When the football results came on, and of course, communication wasn't the same in those days, um, I used to listen to the World Service, you know, in in the middle of America, trying to pick up the signal to get the football results. Um, But I always used to listen out for every team in the Northeast. And I knew Hartlepool because my dad took me there when I was a kid because he was an engineer and he had some business in Hartlepool. And I remember going to Hartlepool as a kid. I mean, don't remember much about it, but I knew the name, you know. And... um, And so I uh, I used to follow, you know, Newcastle, of course, that's my team. Sunderland, I used to look at because I'm not really a diehard, we hate Sunderland type fan. I'm just interested in football. I used to look out for Middlesbrough, um, Leeds, because, you know, we moved to Leeds, grew up in Leeds, and uh, and Hartlepool. So that was my sort of idea of football. But lower league football, I, I really wasn't interested, you know, um, and I was just a fan, but managing football and that I knew nothing about it. But I tell you what, after I'd been the first one or two games at Hartlepool, I, I thought it was great—the atmosphere and the, um, you know, the closeness of the pitch. It was—it was a far cry from the Premiership, but much more exciting. You know, you were actually living and breathing with the people like yourself and that on the pitch because you were so close. And the fans are so close, and there's none of these prima donnas. Well, apart from you, you know, dancing around the field <laughs> playing football. So, to be honest, Ken, that's why I never moved back to the Premiership because I didn't. Yeah, want I, I to thought play a that. Role. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that's what was holding yeah. you back. <laughs> and of course, when you handballed that thing in the penalty area down in wherever it was, was it Bournemouth or somewhere that day? Oh, or wherever yeah, you I, when you did that, I knew then you didn't want to progress your career.
0: I've some memory that. Yeah. yeah, I actually
1: remember that because I remember
0: getting fined for it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> do, do you know what happened? I, I, I don't know if you remember this, Mickey. I felt bad about it all week, right? Because I didn't actually get to the Bournemouth game. Um, so I did some video interviews or audio interviews. I think they were video interviews on the Monday after the game because it was live on telly, wasn't it? <clears throat> yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. That's where I saw it live. I mean, yeah. it was
0: shocking. And I came, <laughs> I came up for the training ground, and, and my first question was uh Mickey, uh, is it just about um, trying to forget about the red card and moving on now? And you said, well, I'll try and forget about it if people don't keep bringing it up.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, no. Do you know know, the one day I do remember about that game, obviously apart, Richie, he dyed his hair. He had like a mohegan. Yeah, he did. He dyed dyed his hair and it was raining. And the, the mohegan had just went flat and he had this just like black patch in the middle of his head. One of one of many bad haircuts, I think. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but coming in, coming into Hartlepool, Ken. I guess you're you're off the field. You want to try and make the whole operation more professional. And whenever I have you know, all the time you were there, I think it frustrated you that, that that some of the things you run your businesses like in the oil industry didn't transfer across seamlessly, did they? You, you tried to do as much as you could with the oil industry and how you ran your companies and how you dealt with employees, but there were frustrations in terms of, you know, like agent's fees or bonuses and things like that that, that's sort of uh, unique to football?
2: Yeah. Um, And, I mean, the biggest thing, getting back to your question about flying into Newcastle, was was the media, right? I mean, we we do a lot of media training in the oil business, but it's really to handle disasters, you know, somebody gets killed on a rig or all that sort of stuff. But but not, as you know, we, we never you know IRR is a private country we we the business in the oil is you don't talk about it because you give something away in the oil business it costs you a lot of money so you know the the business of me shying away from the media not want to say much that's just the upbringing you have in the oil business comes wrong a bit you know a bit wrong with the fans and the media because you're not talking all the time but that's the way we are and of course that was a big shock to me the media because when i flew into newcastle and and, and talked to roy from the hartlepool mail he said i want to meet you at the airport and he had the same question, well, what's your ambition, Ken? What do you want to do with this football club? And I went, well, I don't know, you know, I mean, we didn't have any big plan. I said, it's to help our business, but look at Wimbledon. I said, they've come up from the lower leagues and, you know, they've got into the, 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 the first, I think the old first division and, you know, they'd got all, all the lads there, Vinnie Jones, got a hell of a reputation. And, uh, and I said, and, and they came from nowhere. So, you know, you never know what, 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 what can happen in football. And, of course, the next day in the Hartlepool Mail on the headlines <laughs> in the back was, Ken says, we'll do a Wimbledon. But then the next question was, well, how much are you going to spend? You know? So I realised then to be careful what to say to the media because no matter what you say, they decide that they're going to write what they think you said or only part of what you say. So the biggest thing uh, with uh, football was the media. And the second thing, of course, was the players' contracts and the media, and we asked to see a copy of the players' contracts. So I had our boys in Aberdeen look at it and the legal boys, and we all marked it up and sent it back to the club and said, this is the contract that's going to be in place now. They're not getting all this stuff that's in there. (laughs) And then we got told, well, actually, you can't change the contract. And I think that was the biggest shock to us, that we had to hire people on a contract which was really not reflected of the of of, of the present day football because I think it was written by Jimmy Hill or And uh, and that we had no say in how, how how it went. And the only control we had really was the player's salary. And uh, that he, you know, if he's a goalkeeper he should get bonuses for this and his striker should get bonuses for scoring goals. And I'm like, but that's his job in it, a striker. What does he want a bonus for? You know? Oh it's the norm. It's the norm. <laughs> What do you mean? Well, what, you mean he needs a bonus so he'll actually try and score a goal? I said, I'm sure he doesn't. <laughs> and so that was a really, really tough. And it, I think that was the first time after the few four months I went back to Aberdeen and I went, you know, this is a nightmare. We can't run a company like this and uh, actually have no control on players. Who are the people you want to get your promotion to? So, we were very close then to, like, what the hell have we done? But we decided that, well, okay, that's the deal. Let's see what we can do. And then we heard about agents. Well, that was the final straw when we heard you have to play agents. <laughs> because it was like, listen, wh- why does a player need an agent? Well, he, he, he needs somebody to negotiate for him. Well, yeah, but he's coming to work for us. And, and, of course, we just look at his work. He's coming to work for us. Yeah, yeah, but he's got to get his salary. and, and, and Yeah, but he's coming to work for us. So surely he should come in and tell us what he wants. And we say, no, this is what you're gonna get. And he says, well, and we settle on it. And that's the deal. Oh, but he needs an agent to do that for him. I says no, he didn't. He just needs to tell me how much he wants and I'll either agree or I won't agree. I says, but I'm sure if we want him and he only wants to come to Hartlepool for Hartlepool's sake and not for money. I says, cause I don't want anybody coming to Hartlepool just for money. Cause that's no good to me. I want him to come cause he wants to come to Hartlepool. We'll talk about the money. And if he likes what we offer, great. But why should I pay an agent for doing something that I'm sure I can negotiate with a player? And, uh, and, 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 and that's when we decided we would never deal with agents. And, um, and we didn't. And so it saved, it saved, you know, because our argument was we weren't in it for Hartlepool to make a profit, but we were in it to reinvest every penny that we could that was made from Hartlepool back into the club. And I didn't like the idea that Iowa was sponsoring a football club here, which was making losses, and sponsoring some agent's lifestyle when really I'd prefer, shall we say, to give a player a bit more money.
1: Yeah. I know, Ken, over the years, you did alter some of the contracts, and I'll never forget, I remember sitting on the bus with Nels one day, and he was, we were talking about the contracts, and he was like, have you seen this, Mickey? And I was like, no, no, because lads don't talk to each other about what's in the contracts. And I've always said, it's your contract, if you're happy to sign it, you sign it, and you move on, whatever anyone else gets is up to them. That's for them to deal. So we're sitting talk and talking. I think we're having a cup of coffee. And Nil says, look, if we get relegated, we lose 20%. And I was like, all right, yeah, that's, that's fair enough. If we go down the league, I think we'll probably deserve it. And he says, and then if we get promoted, we get 20% back. I was like, oh, that's absolutely fine. He said, but what you realise that, say, if you're £1,000 and you lose 20%, you're on 800 and then you get promoted, you get 20% here at 100. That's not the thousand pound you're on two years ago. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's true, that, Nels. And he was like, I don't think we should stand for this. I was like, well, if you want to go and speak to the body, you can. But you did alter the contracts a little bit as, as probably as much as you are good, governed by the PFE, I suppose.
2: Yeah, it, it was very restrictive. And I think we actually got challenged on that clause um, for that very reason. And we said, yeah, but we can't, we can't say if you get promoted, you get 30%, because we then have to say if you get relegated, you get 30 You know, it's a, it's a vicious circle. Um, but we said that, yeah, but if they get promoted and they do well, then on the next season or the next contract, we can, we can do some reward that way. But unfortunately, everybody suffered when you've gone down, and we're still suffering when you come back up, don't forget, because we've still got all the costs. And so the, 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 the whoever we had to do, the Football League or PFA said, okay, well, at least it's, it, it's the same percentage in the sense of what you're saying. Um, but it, is, it was a tough one, that. But we were a great believer on, uh, in, in performance, you know. And it was the same when we took on a manager and he only had a month's notice in his contract, or maximum maybe three. They were used to fix some contracts and they'd moan and groan about it. And our argument was, look, If you do well in any contract, you shouldn't worry about the clause that says you're going to get fired. You're only going to get fired if you're failing in your work. And if you're failing in your work, why should we pay you fifteen months salary? Because you failed. Yeah. And And so we will give you three months salary or one month, whatever is agreed, like normal, because you know, if you failed, unfortunately, the club can't afford to pay you for failing.
0: And in terms of moving the club on in, in pivotal moments in the Iowa's regime, how important was the appointment of Chris Turner? Because that was the point when we spoke about it with Chris himself and with Mickey uh, previously, when the club really started uh, to go like that with on the football side as well. It,
2: it, it was very difficult. It was very risky. Um, if you recall, when we took over the club, we had Mick Tate, right? And Mick... Um, was doing his best with what what he had. Yeah. Um. I, I don't know whether he, you know, he liked us taking over or not. I'm I'm sure managers always feel concerned when when somebody comes in who didn't appoint them, especially in football, which you all know is a bit risky. But we had no intention of of moving Mick Tate on because we didn't know any better. And as far as we know, what Harold was saying, you know, Mick Mick had things going for him. Um. But what happened with with, with Mick was we we actually again it was our naivety because this is the very early days and we decided that we really wanted to let the world know that we'd arrived and that Iowa wanted to do business and and wanted to give the fans something to shout and scream about and uh, so um, you know I contacted Peter Beardsley and uh, we did a deal with Peter and I'd known him from before and that and and, and he was going to actually go back to Carlisle. And and I convinced him to, to come to Hartlepool. And what I didn't know was that you should really, you know, check in with the manager on this with players.
0: <laughs>
2: because I didn't know what to do. i would never been a manager. And, of course, in Iowa, if we want to hire someone, we hire them. So, of course, we did the deal with, with, with Peter. And, and we definitely didn't want the media to know. So, we did it all via Iowa. And then, I don't know who it was. Um, who was doing the media job before you, Mark? Paul Mullen. Yeah, Paul, yeah. Paul Mullen. So um, so I, I, I let Paul and, and Harold know that, well, we've just signed Peter Beasley, But we didn't tell Mick. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it, it, it came out, and I can remember it to this day. I'm walking down Northumberland Street, and my phone rang. And, of course, in those days, it was one of the old brick phones, as it were. And it was Mick Tate. And he was like, Chairman, you can have a word with you. Yeah, yeah, you're busy. No, no, go and carry on. It was... He says, "Um, I've just heard you've signed Peter Beasley. And I went, yeah, good, isn't it? Fantastic. That'll be really good. And, of course, the voice I got at the end, it wasn't fantastic. It wasn't very good because I didn't ask him. He says, you don't expect me to play him, do you? And I went, well, yeah, mate, that's the idea, to get the fans up and and really get the... um, you know, get the crowd buzzing, and and I think from then on Mick wasn't impressed with the way I was running the football club. And it wasn't until later Harold said, "You know, you're supposed to discuss it with the manager." <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we never did that before. <laughs> Again,
1: <laughs> I tell um, you, when actually when Peter did come, my brother-in-law is the biggest Peter Beasley fan in the world, and one day Peter, for some because he lived not too far from me, he was saying, you can I pick you up? It's just drive, so I've got someone to drive in with. So I was living at Houston at the time, and I told my brother-in-law, my brother-in-law drove a fully grown man. He's waiting outside the house. So Peter gets he pulls up his range rover. And we're driving down. He used to always want to drive down to like Weatherby or further down so you can get on. So we're driving down there and he said he got a phone call. I'll never forget it because it's it was one of the first cars where the the, the phone was around you, so you oh, hear yeah. it in So I'm like, so he's taking his phone call and he's like, yeah, yeah, well, I'll see, I'll see. I'm driving down at the moment. And um, he's like, yeah, Mohammed, yeah, no worries. I'll try my best. I'll try and come this, that and the other. So he hangs the phone up and he says, Mickey would be able to drive me car back after the gear? because I'm going to stay down in London. I said, yeah, yeah, says, is that a friend of yours? Are you having a party? He's like, yeah, yeah, good friend of mine. Um, you might know him. And I was like, he, he said he owns a little shop in London. And it was <laughs> Muhammad Al Fayed. He was <laughs> really, <laughs> yeah. And I was like, this guy works in different circles what have So, whoa, but I did, I did kept the, get to keep his rage rover for the weekend, which for my part was quite a good, quite a good day. <laughs> but now he, I, to be honest, I know what you said about Mick, but Peter, when he came in, was was brilliant for the especially for the northeast lads. Like everyone loved him and he trained really well. And I know he had games where he might not have affected the game, but in certain games you could see that little bit of class that he had.
2: Yeah. And of course on his debut he scored, didn't he? So we couldn't we couldn't have asked for better yes. there I'm sure someone
1: time. I'm I'm sure someone else scored that day as well, but yeah. I can't remember I can't oh. remember who it was. Oh wasn't you Mickey wasn't <laughs> it, Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't
2: <leave.
0: laughs>
1: Totally lost the headlines. <laughs> I tell you what, it was one of the worst headers I've ever seen, and it just <laughs> slipped under the keeper. And Peter scored a brilliant volley, so obviously he did. Was, he volleyed it. He was, he was deserving of the headlines, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: trigger, as, a, as a signing, Ken, I suppose that that triggered my memory a little bit. How did you get the player of the class of Jan Over Pedersen to come across to Hartlepool? Because I know when even this far back as Micky's testimonial, when you were saying he, he's probably the best player you played with at Hartlepool, is not he?
2: I mean, because we had the contacts in Norway and Bran and everybody, um, you know, that was one idea that Larson had. That well, why why can't we try and get some guys over there from Norway, somebody different, something to help out? And um, and 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 we, you know, we I, I, I don't know the order that came in, but you know, we had Martin Holland come over and all those guys. And then um, we found out that Janover Peterson was available to come over when brand had their winter break. So shall we say they finish in October, November, and they don't go back till January or whenever. And th- there was a chance of getting this guy called Jan over Peterson, who, you know, we were like, well, bloody hell, he's a, he played for Norway, you know, he's, he's quite a guy. <laughs> um, and so that deal was done in Norway. So we, 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 Iowa picked up the bill but our wasn't really involved in that deal they did a deal with Jan over and said look if i was interested in this this is the deal for him coming over yeah and, uh, and and we went yeah why not we we you know we want to put some money into the club and we want to try and uh, bring the um, just bring a bit of quality and we knew that Jan Ove because he played sort of european type football and norwegian football which we all know it, it took the English teams a long time to adapt to Europe and, and, and have different things. But we knew his, shall we say, his style of play, or, or we hoped his style of play would probably fit in a bit, bit better into teams like Hartlepool mm-hmm. than, um, you know, picking people of the Peter these characters who were used to the premiership type of football. Um, and so we thought we'd take a gamble on it. And, and I think Jan Over fitted in because not only could he show his skill in his class, he could actually fit in with the style of play of Hartlepool. And I think, I think that was the, the key moment when we realised that could happen when he started playing his first game.
1: Yeah, I remember his first year's training and, <laughs> and a small, quiet guy came in the dressing room and looking around, not knowing who he was. And, and just the first touch of the ball, you could tell straight away, this is, he's too good. Power team, it basically hit. and And I, I was in that team and I'm not saying it against it. He was too good to play for us. But once you got to know him, a really, really lovely, lovely man as well. I remember, I think it was a Christmas party that he ended up in one one of the clubs with Johnny Breward, him and Martin Holland, and sitting out in a couple of pints. And the locals couldn't believe it. But Jan, he, he almost immersed himself into the, the area in the football. He room. did. For the he small did. time he was there made a huge impact on yeah. the club and the fans and the area, I think. And just a, a generally lovely, lovely guy, but a fantastic footballer. Yeah, and,
2: and I think that's the key, Mickey, isn't it? You, if he comes over and, and he's got his family or, or whatever, um, you've got to be careful that some guys will come in and they think they're above Hartlepool and they're above the region and, you know, I'm an international player, why should I yeah. mix with... A, with the locals here you know i'm on a deal i'm here for well we're back to i'm here for the money you know we don't want people who come for the money but he, he just blended right in and he, and he actually he didn't really want to leave you know at the end but of course his contract was with Bran, <laughs> and when it finished with brown we tried to get him back but of course he'd been offered a, a contract in austria yeah. and you know we couldn't compete and, and okay he, i remember trying to convince him to come to Hartlepool when he'd finished his career, at, well, not his career, but his, his contract at Brand. Man, that guy was so keen to come back. But we couldn't match his deal in Austria. You know, it was just right. ridiculous. Um, and he, and he, he really apologised that, you know, he's that sort of guy. He actually apologised yeah. for letting us down. And he'd love to come. But, you know, he was on the tail end of his career, the move to Austria. And actually, that's where he settled, I think. He's in Austria now. Um, right. and, he, and he's gone into coaching, I think, from what I gather. But, he you know, he... He knew he had to look to his family in the future. Um, and really, his brain was into that, but his heart was in Hartlepool.
1: And I don't think, think he can
2: ask any more from any <clears throat> any players, whether it's you, Mickey, or anybody. If your heart's in it and you're willing to adapt to the area, you, you can't ask for more, can you? He's going to play 100% because no. he's happy.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that was one of the first times when you realise that. The club was going to change when you realize Iowa were going to help the club to be as big as, as they could be and I think that was quite a pivotal moment for me when, when Jan came in and you realize that this company that's taken over has a lot of pulling power in different countries never mind in different parts of England in different countries and they can bring players in that was only going to make us a lot better and as I say it was a big moment for the football club yeah, yeah. Well, well, that's what
2: we try to do, Mickey. And, I mean, even to the extent of the, um, you know, the, the pre-season training when somebody suggested the USA stuff and and the the, the Holland trips and all that. And, uh, I mean, we were, we were very close to taking, I think, I think it was probably mid-2000s, but we were very close on taking you guys on a preseason to Yemen.
1: Yeah, yeah, I remember that. I
2: don't know if you remember that, but we yeah. the, the British ambassador down there a lady called Guy Francis. Um, she, um, she obviously supported us and liked what we were doing as a club, and, and, and as a not as a club, as an oil company, because we we'd done a lot for Britain down there. Obviously, we were the very first British oil company in Yemen to produce oil. Um, so we we're thought of very highly with the Yemenis and the British government. And she was actually unique. A woman in Yemen, um, but she, she, the locals and the, and the ministry took to her. She could speak Arabic. She, she, she was very polite. And you know, for a woman to have that, uh, shall we say, attention and respect in 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 Yemen, in a, in a very you know male-dominated society, was quite unique. And uh, and she said to me one day when I was down there, she said the British government are changing the stance on marketing now. And rather than try and sell British goods, we'd like to sort of Bring ideas of um, friendship into um, into countries, and I said to her, "I says, well, we own a football team, you know. Um, what do you think we brought them down on a pre-season friendly? Um, I think that would be good for for UK Yemen relations." And her eyes just about popped out, and she says, "I'll, I'll contact uh, the government tonight and and see if they're up for that." And the British government were like, "Buddy, yeah, that's a good idea. That's going to win us friends. You know, football it's the language, speaks to all the world, and." Um, and before you know it, um, they were talking to the Yemeni ministry and and we were going to line up a friendly with the with Yemeni national team and play two games, one in Aden and one in Sana. And we had it all lined up um, until the... Um, oh Well, I'll tell you when it was. It was 2002 or 2003 because what put the, the block on it was
0: 9-11.
2: When 9-11 happened, it was classed as dangerous for you know, Westerners to go into the Islamic world, shall we say, without being racist. Um, but it was, it was like, and, and the British government told us that it was not really appropriate to take a bunch of footballers down there uh, that could be subject to assault, kidnap, you know, and all this after 9-11, because of course nobody knew what the hell had happened to 9-11. And yeah. The town you had to drive through um, to get to our um, oil field was a town called Hadramat. And everybody in that town was called Bin Laden. Because the families there were the Bin Laden family. And that's where Bin Laden came from. But he then subsequently, he moved to Saudi and then went on to to do what he did. And of course, at one time, he was fighting for the Americans. So everybody in this town was Bin Laden, you see. So it was a bit nerve wracking as you went through, like everybody is Bin Laden, what's gonna happen? But actually they're all friendly and um, but they gave us a bit of hassle. So we said, and they said, well, you know, we, we heard you might be bringing a football team. So would you bring it to this town to play a game against Hadramat United, or the hell they were? And, and everybody has Bin Laden on the shirt, you know. I said, oh, yeah, the lads will love this. Yeah, I says, you know, playing against the Bin Ladens, you know, they would be right up for that. And, uh, and anyway, when it was cancelled, the whole trip, um, They came to us and said, yeah, it's a pity I had to get cancelled, but, you know, is there anything you can do to help the local football team? Well, so we talked to Russ and, of course, we shipped down a load of Hartlepool United shirts for them all and their local team with Bin Laden on the back were playing in Hartlepool shirts.
1: (laughs) Well, see, I remember that, Ken, and actually I got a text message of uh, Bracker and he says, ask Ken why we never went to Yemen. (laughs) the, the, The story we were told at the time was that they looked through the squad list and they got down to Mark Tinkler. And they were like, no chances is he
0: coming
1: in. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in this
2: podcast, I don't want to pick on names, so I never mention that.
1: <laughs> what a fantastic story, though. Um, obviously, with that first
0: appointment of Chris Turner, it went really well, didn't the playoffs? Oh,
2: yeah, we, we started off on Chris, didn't we? Um, yeah, so it was pretty nerve-wracking. Because with, with, with I think with Mickey, he... Mike, uh, Mick Tate, he, um, I I can't remember, you'll probably remember guys, I I don't think Hartlepool were doing too well that season. No, No, they were struggling, yeah. Yeah, they they were struggling, and um, so we decided that, you know, that we had to find a new manager, and and of course we didn't know what to do, so uh, um, Harold told us, well, what you do, you advertise and all that, so... We got these CVs in and we set up uh, some meetings for the potential managers in the, um, in the Copthorne Hotel in Newcastle and I was in this room and, uh, you know, I didn't know what I was looking for. Harold was there um, and I think Ian McCrae was there. I can't remember. But anyway, the managers came in and I really didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know how to ask a manager. I didn't know... You know, if you're getting an engineer, you ask him, you know, can you do this? Can you do that? But yeah. I didn't know what to ask him. You know, can you manage football team? Well, what's he going to say? Yeah, I can manage football team. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I, I really couldn't figure it out. And all of a sudden, this guy came in, young guy, obviously, Chris, I didn't, didn't know his name. And he sat down and he, he told us who he was and that he was with Wolves, with the youth team and he'd won the competitions, and, uh, and I said, oh yeah, and why are you interested in Hartlepool? And he started off on this talk, and it was always we. He'd automatically defaulted to we. So when he was saying what he thought he could do with Hartlepool, he says, you know, we can do this, we can do that. And I'm listening to this guy talking we, and I'm thinking bloody hell, he's already in the job. He's committed, he's, he's saying the word we. And he said uh, he'd been to some away games before he came to the interview. And he says, I know what we can do. He says, and he says, look, I've written the match report. And that's where I got the idea of match reports from. Oh.
1: And, uh, <laughs> so, so it's Chris's fault.
2: <laughs> so he'd, he'd, he'd written these match reports. And, he'd, he'd, he, and then he presented it. He, he says, look, this is what I can do with Harlepool. And he handed over this folder of, you know, what I can do from Pool. And, of course, I couldn't read it there and then, but I just flipped through it. And, I mean, how prepared was that? And, and, he, and he was really keen and he says've um, um, you know I think he'd got I think he'd won the league with the youth team or something. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and Harold was like oh he's a young guy and you know and, and and I just looked at these other guys and and now looking back they were all the usual guys who come for jobs when the manager comes up but I, I didn't know but what stuck in my mind and I thought to myself, you know what we're a young club in the sense of ior's ownership we ain't got a clue what we're doing why not bring somebody in who probably doesn't have a clue what he's doing because he's never managed a club at this level but is as green as we are i like him he seems to have a plan i don't have a plan let's do it (laughs) that's how it happened yeah that's how it happened and of course we we became good friends and all that but it just went and then he says i've got um he says i think what would be good he says um we need to, to bring someone from the Northeast into my team, he says, who I think he'll go down really well. And uh, and he did, and, and we ended up with, with both of them doing the doing, doing the, the the job. Um, a guy uh, who, who was from the northeast, uh, Chris Turner was from the north, people who understood the northeast and the northern culture and, and thinking, and um, and the two of them went off and did a fantastic job and picked the team you saw, brought in players they knew, you know, uh, and put that, that team together. And, okay, it took a little while just to, to gel and, and move on. But you just had faith in, 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 in the management of Hartlepool then. And, uh, and we've suddenly realised that, you know what, we've cracked it. it we, we've got that rapport. The team's got that rapport. They want to play. They want to play for Chris. Um, we could see it gelling together with you guys and and, and, and the guys he brought in. Um, it, it was really luck because we didn't know how to get a manager. And when Colin came, he came as a player, player yes. assistant manager. Yeah, he, never you know, he, he told us all the spiel, Colin, you know. Yeah, I can come <laughs> in. And, and, and you're going to get two for the price of one here, chairman. And Chris is going, yeah, he'll be all right. He can sign. So, yeah, you know, what you got to do, is sign him as a player manager. And we've got him. And then we found out he couldn't bloody play. His knees were not <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> So we got two for the price of one, all right. <laughs> <laughs> but it turned out well. So it was, it was really just let's give somebody young a chance. And if you notice, we try to take that attitude mm. to the appointment of managers. We like to give young... People to try, or first-time manager try, and the times when we defaulted from that were where basically we need help. So when we need, when we got relegated, we needed to get back in. We chose the manager that could do that, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and uh, and that was it.
0: Just just move. Obviously, Chris got great success. The playoffs then led to two thousand and three, where it looked like everything that had gone before was laying the tracks for automatic promotion. And then suddenly Sheffield Wednesday come calling, and and you've got another decision to make on the manager front, then haven't you? And and, and how did how did that disrupt things for you?
2: I was a massive shock, massive blow. Um, you are back to a Jan over Peter situation, aren't you? Where Chris really didn't want to leave, but how do you turn down a job with your hometown club? You know, um, you know he wanted to stay, but I had lots of talks with him, and even. So I, even when he was setting off to drive down to talk, you know, he wanted permission to go talk. I, 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 I tried to convince him not to go. And he, and he went, look, Ken, I, 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 I can't turn down a chance. And I knew then that we'd lost him. And, and, and it was tough, um, you know, because it, it, I think we would have went on to some fantastic times together. Uh, but then, like we used to tell everybody, if you're successful... You know, the same thing, Mickey, when we were had the young players there and, and they wanted to leave and they were promised the gold from bigger clubs and all that. And, you know, we always used to say to them, look, if you're that good, son, and you do with a Hartlepool, you'll hit the headlines and somebody's going to come and get you. You know, it's very hard to convince people of that. But with Chris, you know, it was sort of the same. And uh, and, and it was pretty devastating.
1: So, and Ken, then, is, there any, is there anything as an owner where... You you could have stopped them going. Is there, was there a, any any point where you you would have turned around and said no? You're not going, Chris. Or did that go against sort of the principles that you had and, and the sort of friendship that you had with Chris
2: as well? Um, well, again, you got to go back to the IOR policy. Is that we, we we never stop people from advancing if we can help it because we know at the end of the day they got a family and kids and you know they 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 they've got the head and the heart and. And uh, when, when that happened with Chris, we could have invoked, you know, he couldn't leave. He had a contract with us, right? He'd be in breach of contract. We could have sued him. We could have done everything. But what's the point of having a guy there if you don't want to play, you know, uh, or he doesn't want to manage? Um, and, and if you feel that you're stopping his progression, I, I, I think it would have soured the whole thing. We could have, we could have legally done it, but it just, it just didn't seem right to do. And, I, and I, I really thought, OK, what I'll do, I'll, I'll convince Colin. And if you know, Colin was in his uh, temporary manager and uh, and he went away. And I think he won a couple of games. I think he lost as one. But anyway, we thought that because the team, as you know, in those days, the team was running itself. I mean, all you lads were just, you know, you turn up and put it in first gear and off you went. You know, it's just like a car. You didn't need tuning. You didn't need. Telling you, you went and did it. You knew what you were doing, and Chris and them were there to to guide and help or whatever they do. But I thought, you know, if we can get Colin West to stay, at least that'll do us the continuity, and let's see where it takes us. Because I think we're, we were looking well that season for doing really well. You know, when he left, um and I, and I had a meeting with Colin. In fact, I brought Colin up to here where I live, and we went into the local pub and we had a pint or two and, and a chat and. And he says, All right, can I think about it, you know? And I says, and I did the other trick then. I says, you know, listen, this is your future. You've got to progress to a manager. I says, it's fantastic. You go with Chris, you're only going to be assistant manager. You know, well, why why don't you make the move into management? You know, we encourage people to move up. And he was like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then he called me up and he says, Can we have another meeting? So I met him at Newcastle Airport, a pub near there. And we stood in the bar and had a beer, and 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 that's when I knew I'd lost him. He just he wasn't coming back with the right answers and I thought he's going through the motions trying to tell me how he'd like to stay but in reality he's, he's gone, he wants to do with the Sheffield and see if they can go on to bigger and better things and, and so we lost him. So we lost both of them, it was, it was really disappointing. And then Mark produced this musical video that had everybody crying afterwards. I think. <laughs> What well, did it? What was what was the, the the lighthouse family, was it? It was the
0: lighthouse family, yeah. Yeah, I
2: know you had everybody in the club crying, watching
0: it. <laughs> I still can't listen. I put that on another song um about the club a, a year or so ago, but it still does remind me of the Chris Turner video. Yeah, yeah.
2: Every every time I hear this song on the radio, <laughs> i burst tears.
0: Um so obviously once Chris had departed, you went back to that technique of trying to give a, a young manager his first go in, in, in football management. Now we did go on and get automatic promotion, but my memory at the time was that things never really seemed to click with Mike Newell the way that they did with Chris Turner, with, with you particularly, I guess. Well, um, I, I think for, for me, being
2: relatively naive in football and football management, um, I think it's it, very hard to replace the Chris turner Colin West Act. Very hard. Because that's all we knew, right? Don't forget, we'd hired him. You know, Mick Tate, yeah, but we really didn't know Mick. That was Harold's business. But this was our first venture, and it it actually turned out to be successful. Yeah. Um, So all of a sudden, you lose that. And and for us, having no experience in football, you know, it's a bit like being a fish out of water. What do we do? So we had to go through the interview process again, and of course, we have to follow the IOR guidelines for interviews. But really didn't know what to do and and I know I was talking to, to shearer and he said look there's this guy Mike Newell who he used to play with and uh, you know he, he thinks he he'd, he'd be good at management he'd seen him in action with players and and all that and and I remember talking to shearer about it and, and and you know can you can you give him a chance can you give him an interview and I said yeah okay you know alan we'll we'll um we'll give him an interview so we did and, and he came across quite good. And again, it was like somebody breaking into management, someone with quite a bit of experience of handling all sorts of players. And, you know, with, with also a bit of a track record in the football business Yeah. and a recommendation by Shearer. Um, and, and I thought, well, why not? Let's give it a try. And we did. And, and, and Mike, you know, he did okay and all that. But he it, it was always a comparison of of the... The Chris Turner deal, and you know we all used to go partying in Hartlepool and that, and, uh, and, and Mike had uh, come down with us, you know, but he never seemed to, you know, if you went, we're drinking with Chris and Colin, you weren't manager and, 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 and owner, you were just two lads having a drink, you know, a bit like Yanova, you just went out and, and went. But with Mike, he was always, I don't know, I think a lot of managers are, are trained to not have trusted owners in football, I think there's a you and, you and them thing and the PFA, not the PFA, the um, the Managers Association. I, I, I just, I always had that feeling that it was just, you know, don't trust the owners because they'll fire you straight away. But it was never, the owner should never trust the managers because he's going to walk out on you and you won't get a better job, you yeah. know. So there was always that in my mind, rightly or wrongly, that, and, and I think, you know, with Mike and that, it, it never, he, he never really seemed to, take the IOR philosophy on board. And, and he wanted to act like a typical football manager. You know, I want a budget and I want to do it my way. And we said, we don't operate like that. We don't give you a budget. I don't know what I want to spend. You just tell us what you want. And yeah. if the economics are right, we'll let you have it. You know, yeah. we're not going to go let you spend our money because the club's running at a loss and we can't just dish out money. And that lost a lot of potential managers a chance to get into management with us because they didn't want to accept that. Um, and Mike, although he, he you know, he, he, I, I think he, he could have gone on great, but I'm sure he'd say the same with us. You know, he, if, if we'd let him do what he wanted 100%, he would have done better than what we thought. And our viewpoint was, well, if you run the club the way we want, we'll be happy with what we achieve. And that's why we had the philosophy of no pressure to get promoted or expectations, just go out, enjoy football, enjoy what you're doing. Don't embarrass the club. And don't get relegated. You know, real three simple principles. Um, and to take those on board, you have to give up the idea of you're going to control the players' budget and and, and the football side of football. And, and really, that was the issue with Mike and other managers.
0: That was that's an interesting point you brought us on there because that's one of the things I tell people about IOR in terms of the the money we spend. You you not you personally, but IOR I guess kept a track of. Um, the finances in terms of buying a player in the same way as you'd keep track of us buying a stapler and I know that's an extreme example but <laughs> it, I always say to people you know, if, if I wanted a new stapler I would go and have to fill in all the forms and explain why I wanted a new stapler in exactly the same way as Chris Turner or Mike Newell would have to describe why you wanted a new centre forward and at the end if you couldn't be bothered to jump through those hoops then did you really need the new stapler after all
2: yeah, well, that was a checklist, wasn't it?
0: If so you could be bothered been, to do
2: the paperwork, you can't need it. Or if you said to hell with it, I'm not doing the paperwork, well, did you really need it? You
0: know? <laughs> and, that, that whole not having a budget scenario was, was probably alien, I guess, because it was, it was just a case of you make a case for why you need that right back, that left back, that centre forward, and we'll consider it. That was how it worked, wasn't
2: it? And we very rarely turned it down. What we would turn down is they'd say, oh, he needs a goal bonus for being a centre-forward. We'd say, no. But, he said, well, but those are the only things we'd pick on. We'd very rare... We'd ha- we we had a player checklist. It was typed up. And it had every question... It was one page, I think. I don't think it even went to two pages. But it had everything like, you know, is this player injured? Is he coming back How many red cards has he got? How many yellow cards has he got? Because it's no good as signing a player if he's going to be suspended for three games, you know. And all little nitty-gritty nitty like that. What's his salary expectations? Is he going to move to Hartlepool? You know, is he bringing his family? Uh, is his wife a model and she'll bug her off to Glasgow when we're not ready? You know? <laughs> um, And stuff like that. Uh, and so we, we had all that on this checklist. And a lot of managers have bulk with it. But at the end of the day, they were quite shocked that once they'd filled it out and there's maybe a few questions came back, they got the player. Um, it, it, it re- very rarely failed. But it also confirmed that the manager really did want that player and not just fancied getting a squad of 26 when he only needed 24. So it, it was quite... We felt, from Iowa's point of view, that it was quite effective and it kept a track of the, um, uh, 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 the cost of the players, you know? So it, um, I, I think it worked, Mark. It,
0: it definitely did. It definitely did. Um, and, and, and moving on, obviously, from Mike after that... Uh, into the summer of 2003, promotion assured, we're going into League One as a a new endeavour for for Iowa and you had to go out and find a new manager and and Neil Cooper was the one who not many people in England or in Hartlepool had heard of. How did that come about? What were your first impressions when you met Neil? Because he was such a a wonderful character, wasn't he?
2: Yeah, well, I think Neil, um, you know, without trying to build him up because the poor guy, you know, died early. Um, I mean, he's, if you've got, if you want to say that managers under Iowa's regime that really stood out, not based on success or non-success, I I, I think, you know, Chris Turner and, and Neil Cooper are the the two that, that stands out in our 15 years. And, um, and, and Neil was, um, you know, I sort of heard of this guy, but I didn't know him really that well. But of course, in Aberdeen he was a hero, and with Alex Ferguson he was a hero. You know, those guys went to Gothenburg and, and did the business, and, and in fact, that what cemented Fergie's future. You know, um, so of course, uh, Fergie was 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 always keeping in touch with those boys, and uh, and I got tipped off in Aberdeen or Iowa did, because our accountant uh, Alan Kroll, used to do Neil Cooper's accounts. And our lawyer, David Lansman, uh, he used to do Alex Ferguson's legal stuff in Aberdeen. So we got tipped off that Neil was looking for a, 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 a position. He wanted to move into management. And uh, so we had our, um, our lawyer check with Alex Ferguson, who the hell this guy was. And of course, Alex was like, you know, well, I just knew him as a player type of thing. And the years have gone on since then. But... You know, told us about his enthusiasm and charisma and all that. And then Alan Kroll, who did his account, he, he, he ticked the box again. So I said, uh, well, he hasn't applied. And they went, no, no, he hasn't applied. Um, but he's got an agent who he can apply to. And, of course, that was just a red rag to a bull. And I went, well, you can tell the agent to get stuffed because I'm not talking to him. However, if Neil had like to pop by the office in Aberdeen, in Iowa's office, tell him to do so. And, uh, and they said, yeah, we'll, we'll mention it to him, but he probably won't. He'll want, he'll want to have the talks with his agent. And I went, well, he can, but his agent ain't coming into my office. So take his pick if he's interested. And again, I was testing them out. If you really want to come to Harleypool, son, you're going to come for the to the office, aren't you? Anyway, uh, I'm in my office one day and, and Alan Cross said, yeah, I think Neil's coming now. And I went, all right.
1: and In and, and,
2: and my office, I could look a bit to where the secretary was, but I couldn't see who was coming to the office, the floor we were on. And all of a sudden, I heard this voice. Goes, you know, my name's Neil Cooper, and, I, and I'm and I'm looking for the chairman. And the secretary went, "We don't have a chairman." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he went, well, "I'm looking for Ken Odcroft And she went, "Well, he's not the chairman. He's the director." And of course, the staff in Aberdeen they didn't know me as a chairman. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Neil went, "Yeah, well, we, whatever. Yeah, with the football club." And I could just hear this guy's voice, and I thought, man, he sounds like quite a character, you know. So he came in, and and and, uh, and I called Ian McRae in, and I said. You know, let's have a chat with Neil so we went into the boardroom we had a chat with him well bloody hell he had his in stitches you know and I'm <laughs> to myself I'm supposed to be deciding if this guy's the manager but I'm getting convinced because he's funny you know and <laughs> you know, I'm going to lose him for a manager not being a comedian you know and and uh, so I, he just told us and he says, yeah, I really? Can't. I says, but Neil, it's down in Hartlepool. Oh, I'm not bothered. He says, I'm, I'm ready. I'm up for it, you know. And uh, he says, and um, uh, he's either getting divorced or he's divorced and he had his two kids and all that. And uh, and he says, no, no, I'll move there. No problem. He says, I might need to nip back up to see my kids. He says, but I'm I'm ready to go, you know. Okay. And then, uh, I says, well, what are you doing now, Neil? And, By this is about five o'clock at night. He says, nothing. I says, well, shall we go for a drink in the... Um, in the local area where I live, and he said, Yeah, he says, let's go for a drink. So we went into this pub called the Ferry Hill Hotel. And of course, what I didn't realize is that hotel is where the players, Aberdeen players, went for the pre match meal, right? And so, uh, and so what happened was, the uh, it, it, we went into this pub, and of course, everybody in the club was shouting, Hey, Neil, how you doing? You know, because they all knew him from Aberdeen player. And I'm like, bloody uh, hell! This guy is well known, you know. So we bought around, and uh, and I had a pint of Guinness, and uh, and Neil had a, a pint of something. Mm-hmm. And I just took this sip of this pint of Guinness, and Neil cracked one of his killer jokes, right? Well, I started to laugh, but what I forgot was I still had the Guinness in my mouth, <laughs> and so I sprayed Neil with Guinness. And I, I was so embarrassed and apologised. And there's Neil standing with his shirt like a, with a spray of Guinness across it. And he went, is this a bloody initiation ceremony to get into Hartlepool, he says. He says, this is how you treat your new managers, you know. And uh, so that was my introduction with Neil and uh, and he got the job.
0: <laughs> fantastic. And it couldn't have gone better, couldn't it? those Those two years under Neil were... Was no, fantastic. The first year was, was superb. It was... It was as much fun as I've ever had those those first 18 months under Martin. And it was just fantastic. I mean, well, he's a breath of
2: it. fresh air. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you, Mark, but I mean, it, it, you guys were in the office. I, I, I really didn't know the atmosphere in the office and all that, and, and how managers and that can affect the atmosphere in the office. But I mean, the feedback I got immediately was this guy's a breath of fresh air walking in this building, you know. And it, it actually, he should have been uplifting the manager, he uplifted the whole bloody club, you know.
1: Yeah. No. He did exactly he did exactly the same with the players. It, it was just so much fun. He brought so much enjoyment to what our jobs were that every yeah. day, every day more and more people were coming in early to have a cup of coffee before training because Coops and Scotty and the staff were enjoying themselves and, and you'd hang around longer after training because you wanted just to be hear another story that he might tell. And the whole place got such a huge lift off one character. And it would, ha- it would have had to be someone like Neil to be able to do that to that group of players because it was a good group of players. But I, people used to try and rib them. And I remember Paul Robinson used to have a go them all the time. And when he would come back with something as funny and the whole lads would be in stitches, and it was just for two years, it was a, it was a fantastic place to be at.
2: Yeah. It really was. Yeah. Yeah. And when you've got the, the feeling and the electrification, and, and the energy that he he, he put out to, to, to everyone he met, um, it, it's got to help you on the pitch, hasn't it, Mickey?
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, don't get us wrong, sometimes he's ranting and raving on the sideline or in the, in the change room. I remember times the change room, he'd be absolutely hammering people, like screaming at the top of his voice. And then, like that, he would switch and start laughing. And <laughs> he, he must have just thought at the time, like, this isn't working. Yeah. But he just laughed at himself and then yeah. and other times, he was he was, he was was a bit of a madman. he never knew what was going to happen but whatever he did, the lads reacted well to yeah. and there wasn't many people that he either had a go at, I mean he used to say it to me, he used to say look I'm going to absolutely hammer you on the way in to, at half time and, and no doubt he did it at other players just to get a reaction of other people and he used little things but yeah he could be screaming at you and then all of a sudden just laugh and walk off and that would be the end of what, what you would hear you know it was well, yeah, yeah. you couldn't help but love him as a as a, as a person as a, as a, a coach because he had the players best interests at huh? he yeah. really did really did yeah,
2: yeah it, and it's a shame uh, unfortunately it ended like it did because um again it was a bit of the Chris Turner scenario if 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 Neil had hadn't had his personal problems um uh, which is ultimately his downfall, and not the football club, you know. And unfortunately, his kids weren't with him, and all that. And I mean, he, he, you know, I think we we could have gone on to absolutely great things, and and I think we would have. I, I just think even when you go back to the millennium, he, you know, we would have, we probably would have just done it. He would have just finished that game off for us. Um, but unfortunately, he, he he did have his issues, and. You know, we, we tried to help as much as we can because, of course, that's IORs of the policy is that we, you know, if we hear there's issues um, with anybody, we, we'll, we'll jump in. But not everybody always tells you. But we knew we knew we were. And even to the extent, you know, and he became great friends with the mother and, uh, and she'd actually uh, go to the central station in Newcastle and meet his kids off the train because he couldn't get to the train because of the, when the match finished or training or whatever. You know, and, uh, and 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 him and my mum got on great, and and uh, he just um, we just try to help him as much as we could, you
1: know. And well, uh, I think I think we saw it from the player side as well. I mean, you were starting to hear more and more stories about Neil being in bars, or and you could see it affecting. You know, what I mean, yeah. you could see it on it not a daily occurrence, but. As weeks went on, and if you took pictures of him, I bet you'll be able to see a real difference in him. And it was yeah. such a shame because he was still that guy where you could see the spark that he had. There was something obviously not right in his personal life. There was, that was such a huge thing that he had to, to deal with. But it was such a shame because all the players loved him. Where you could just see it slipping away from him a little bit.
2: Yeah, when well, oh, he was losing... Um... You know, he he was losing the issue with his ex-wife and family. There was a lot of pressure on him for that. And of course, how are you how you controlling issues three hundred miles away yeah. when you when you've got to be at work Monday to Friday. And and I mean, to the end, as you guys probably know, I mean, he he'd think nothing of getting his in his car after he'd done the press at six o'clock on a Saturday and driving to Aberdeen. I mean, that's a hell of a drive, Mick. You know, it's five hours if you yeah. look. And, and he, he, you know, he, he may even be back in training for Monday morning or at least Monday afternoon. And, you know, and while he was there, it was just pure pressure, trying to see his kids, trying to sort things out on his personal side. And um, and, and I just think he, he he felt his kids being remote from him. And, and it, I think at the first he could handle it all, but I think the whole thing came on top of him. And it was such a shame. We tried to help, you know, but what can you do?
1: Yeah, I remember. I, sorry, Mark. I remember, and it, it's it's apart from when Michael Maidens died, and we had that game after Michael died. It's the most emotional I've ever seen a dressing room when he sat us all down. I think if I remember right, it was at Sheffield Wednesday before a game, and you could sense on the bus something wasn't right. There wasn't him and Scotty weren't talking very much, and and he was really edgy that day. And he sat us all down and. And he basically said he had issues in his life with, with, with drinking, this, that, and the other. And he was going to have to take a step back to for himself. Do you know what I mean? And he, the lads were visibly upset in the change room. And I'll never forget, he said, Martin's going to take the game of the day. And after all that, he walked out and he said, I just want to wish you good luck to lads, and all the best. So even in the midst of... I don't know how to describe the breakdown a, a moment where he realised he still had us in his foremost, like he was thinking about yeah. the team more than himself. And yeah. that for me, I, I mean, I cried my eyes out when I heard he died. But that for me showed the true, true man there himself. Even in the in the worst part of his life probably he was going through, he was putting his team before anybody else. And,
2: yeah.
1: and it was a courageous thing to do, it really was. Well, it was, and, and the
2: difficult thing were us, of course. We were, we were hearing all these rumours through the back door, as it were, and then, you know, we had a chat with him, and he'd always tell us, I'm fine, I'm fine, you know, and all that. And at the end of the day, you know, when we knew he he had to go, we had to move on, and we knew he, he just wasn't in the right frame of mind to take these important games, you know. Um, and, of course, Martin, you know, he had to come and tell us this. Well you know it's very difficult that there's a guy there telling you that the boss above him is not able really to do the job and you know well is he really trying to take his job from him you know is he is he saying all this so we had to do a, a lot of checking and, and soul searching uh but then eventually Neil just was honest with it and he said no look that's it you know I, I, i've got to do it and of course martin, martin stepped in but it, it was a sad day that sad day yeah.
1: I, I, again, going back to that, well, the day before the game at Bournemouth, I remember being in the change room and we'd travelled down, i um, sorry, in the hotel room we'd travelled down, and Neil rang me up and I was sitting there and, and he was really, really emotional again. He was tearful on the phone and, and um, again, he just wanted me to tell the rest of the lads to, to go and win the game tomorrow and make sure that we got in the playoffs because he was certain that we'd go and get promoted. But again, he was—he was literally in front of tears. of his ordinary because he's an emotional guy. You know, what I mean, he is an emotional person. But again, he—he he had the best. Our interests. The f- was his first thought. Not yeah. him. Not—not not him going home. Not him looking after himself. He wanted to make sure that we were all right. And yeah. I, and it's—it's something to this day that I always try and do. It. I try and put other people first, and it's because. I saw something in Neil that he did that with people and he made people feel good, even when he was having a really, really tough time. Yeah, yeah. And I think that
2: showed you that, you know, the sort of guy he was. Yeah, 100% um, Ken. He, uh, he'd have a laugh with you, have a bit of a good time. And uh, <laughs> I remember when he, when he first came down and got a place at Harlepool, he wanted a TV, so Russ did his wheeling and dealing it with Tesco. <laughs> and he got that big screen TV but it had been on show in Tesco, and 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 he, and he says, Chairman, he says, I can't sleep at night, that bloody. I says, What's up, Neil? He says, um, He says, he says, oh, I'm I'm seeing the Gruffalo all the time. Says, what do you mean? He means the Gruffalo. And he says, Yeah. He says, Every time I look at that bloody TV, all I see is the Gruffalo. So, so I think Russ went along and had a look at this TV, and sure enough, when you put it on. There was this outline of the Gruffalo and what had happened in Tesco they'd had it on display with just the Gruffalo picture and in those days it burned into the <laughs> you know it burned into the screen like like it used like things used to do in those days and of course was. because Russ got yeah, off off Tesco for nothing as a X display or all, all, all Neil could see was the outline of Gruffalo while he was watching the telly <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you know
2: he's always, always had a story
0: Moving on from here, then, we obviously went to the playoff final, Ken, and, and, and the, the things that happened in the playoff final. One of the stories that people have, have said to me as soon as we, they found out that you were coming on was the big story around the playoff final. Now, we all know what happened in the playoff final, but what can you tell us about this mysterious letter that arrived? We There's bits and pieces of information out there, but what are your memories of that letter that arrived to the football club?
2: Yeah, well, what happened was... Um... Obviously, we went to the final, and then we had that sort of, you know, controversial penalty and all that, and uh, uh, and, and of course we lost, and uh, that, that was pretty hard to take. But on the um, on the Tuesday, because I think it was Bank Holiday Monday in those days, and yeah. everybody had left the club on the Friday or Saturday, whatever, to travel, or or obviously the club had closed. And um, so on the Tuesday morning, I got a call from Hartlepool, and I think it might have been from Sarah. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and she says, Ken, we've, we've had this letter in from a supporter um, uh, mentioning the, the game on, 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 on Sunday or whenever we played. And I says, what do you mean? And she said, uh, well, yeah, we've got it here. And she says, it's, it's very concerning. Go, oh, so she read it out to me, and it said something to the effect of, you know, um, uh, good luck to Hartlepool or something, but we but we aware of, of the, uh, the ref and the penalty in the game. And, uh, and, of course, we'd had this penalty, which everybody was a bit, you know, shaky about. And, and I said, yeah, she said, uh, and the interesting thing on the envelope, it's addressed to Hartley Pools United, which the old name for Hartley Pool, you know, Pools, the Hartley Pools with the S on the end. And she says, and it's written in that old-fashioned copper plate writing. Mm-hmm. So I said, oh, well, it must be from somebody quite old. And if they write like that and they're calling it Hartley Pools. Um, and, and I said, what well, what's the deal? And she says, well, the interesting thing, Ken, she says, it's postmarked Friday. Um, so I said, well, why didn't we know about it? It would have come Saturday. And she said, well, we weren't open Saturday, were we? So we didn't get the mail till now. This morning, I've just opened it up. And I says, oh, well, hold on to everything here. This is, this is really sneaky. What the hell's going on? So here there was a letter that was posted Friday that we would have got on Saturday if somebody had been there warning about a penalty on the Sunday or whenever we played. And we're thinking, hang on, that's strange. It's, you know, we're winning, eight minutes to go. And there's a bloody penalty here. And then I started thinking about the, um, the pre-match meal. And we were all in this fancy dining room. And uh, there was the Harley pool directors on one side and, and, and the, the, the Sheffield guys on another. And we're all in this big room together. And Brian Mulwinny comes in who was the chairman of the football league at the time, and he says, uh, "Oh, welcome everybody! Here it is, playoff finals. Really good," he says, and uh, you know, welcome to Hartlepool, welcome to Sheffield. Yep, I mean, this is it, guys. It'll be uh, it be really good to see Sheffield back in the in the first division. I <laughs> know uh, the championship, wasn't it? Championship. Yeah. And I said, uh, I, I I looked around our table. I went, "What's he on about?" And I thought, "Oh, well, he's just saying it. You know, it'd be nice to have Sheffield back in if, if they weren't and all that." And, I didn't like it, but I thought really no more about it. But on a Tuesday when I heard this, I thought, hang on a minute. Well, when he's saying it'd be good to see Sheffield back, there's a dodgy penalty. There's a guy wrote a letter saying, watch out for the penalty. So I came home and I was chatting uh, to my son. And, you know, as you know well, Mickey, went out with you as the mascot. Yeah, yeah. And he says, uh, he says, well, funnily enough, Dad, he says, when I'm standing in the tunnel, uh, I was looking at the referee and, and, he, and he didn't look too good. He looked ill a bit. And I went, oh, really? He says, yeah. He says, he didn't look good. And I says, okay, fair enough. So then I got a call from a supporter saying, "Uh, Chairman, um, I heard that there's something going on about this penalty. He says, and uh, I'd just like to tell you, he says, the hotel we were in, me and some other supporters, it was the same hotel as the referee. And uh, the referee was up drinking till three o'clock in the morning. So I said to my son, I said, I said, I says, oh, I found out why the ref didn't look too good in the tunnel. And he says, why? <laughs> I said, because he was drinking till three o'clock in the morning. And I'm thinking, here's a referee drinking, important game. And I'm thinking, maybe the result of this game was already decided. And uh, and we, we we spoiled the party by winning 2-1 with eight minutes to go. And uh, so I said to Russ, you know, what should we do? He says, oh, bloody hell. He says, I'm going to uh, meet up with the sort of the the senior referee in the northeast of England or northern England who looks after the referees in the northern part of England. So he called him up and he said he wanted to meet him. So they, they met in the, you know, the infamous uh, cafe on a motorway type thing, you know, where you, <laughs> in the old days the footballers had be slipped a few quid in a brown paper envelope, talk of a deal. And he met him there and, and he goes, yeah, what is it, Russ? What's going on? And he says, well, it's this game on Sunday. Yeah, sorry, you lost and all that. He says, no, no, no. He says, read this. So he gave the referee assessor, or whoever the top guy was in the north, to read it in, in, in the in the um, motorway service station. And the first words out of this guy was, and I, I can't say it on your podcast, but, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and Russ said, exactly. And, and he went, well, well, what do you want me to do about it, Russ? And Russ says, well, I think you should look into it. He says, because, you know, what happened, and we're all a bit niffed about that penalty, um, you know, this guy... Wrote it on Friday saying there's going to be a penalty. All right, Russ, well, leave it with me. So off he went, this guy, to do some investigation. And uh, we didn't hear much back. Uh, and I, and Russ told me he'd met him. And I says, oh, Russ, I'm pissed off. We're going to the police. There's something funny going on here. Need to go to the police and say, we're very concerned about this match. Because everybody's thinking it's sour grapes and all that. And I'm going, well, no. It, it, there's something here, isn't it? A guy didn't write a letter. Post it on Friday, telling us about a penalty on, on the game. And then there's a bloody penalty in the game. Not only that, a very important penalty. So um, so he goes to the police, to, to the infamous Cleveland police, who you know in those days were as honest as the driven snow. They never had any issues. Um, <laughs> and uh, and he goes in there. And he and, and so I told Russ, take a copy of the letter and ask them if they can look get the DNA off the stamp. Because in those days, you still lick stamps. And uh, and when the police heard about it, they said, yeah, okay, we'll investigate it and we'll see. I said, because if, if they can get the DNA, we might know who the guy is. And, and we put a bit of an appeal out, you know, who wrote it, but we never did hear. And uh, and we heard nothing back from the police. So Russ chased him up and he, he said, what, what's the results of the investigation into the envelope and the stamp and everything? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, we've lost it. We, we, we don't know where it's gone. And Russ is like, what? He says, yeah, we send it away for forensics, but they've lost it. And we're like, what's going on? So I know a, a guy in those days up here who was, a, who was an undercover detective in, in the Newcastle side of things. And I said to him, you know, what's going on? What do you do? And he says, Ken, what you do, you write an official letter to the police and saying that you want your evidence back and you know they say they've lost it but you want it back he says and what that does it triggers where they've got to turn the place upside down they really have to look for this evidence so I did and anyway they still come back and said they couldn't find it and then the referee guy came back and said well not much we can do about it and we thought well we're stitched up here you know we're we're not gonna we're not gonna get anywhere you know, it's a long time ago now, and, and, I, and I'm not trying to point the finger at anybody or that anybody was just or just crooked or nothing. It could be just a, a whole coincidence of instances, but you know, it, it still to this day doesn't sit right with me. And I only wish we could have tracked the guy down who wrote the letter. He'll be dead now, I presume, if he was an old guy writing it. Um, it would have been great if he could have come and said where he got that information from or why he even said it, but again, what what cage was that going to rattle? You know, yeah. could he could he have actually come out and and told us who his source was? Um, he probably couldn't, so therefore he shut up and said nothing and watched the watched the the action go by. So it was very disappointing. And, and of course, if we got promoted, if we'd won that game and gone in the championship, when the plan for Iowa was that we would have stayed in the championship, we wouldn't have got relegated from the championship. Would, you th- we would have we done everything we needed to stay in the championship.
0: Could have been a big investment would that. Um,
2: I don't I don't know about a massive investment. There would have been there would have been investment that was needed, right? And and if it meant we had to, you know, go over our our, our sort of idea of how much we're gonna put into Hartlepool, I think we could have got the board to do that because the incentive was that we could do a blackpool. And if you know, once you're in that championship, you can fall in the premiership via the playoffs there there's no way that Hartlepool had win the, the championship because we wouldn't put money in it to try and buy success yeah. but I think with the management and the team and again if it had been uh, Cooper in charge still you know things like that um, I think I think the players would have taken us to the playoffs maybe in, in, in one or two years of being in the championship and you know who knows what happens in the playoffs? Blackpool did it, so I, I, I really do think we, we could have done well in the championship, and that was our one and only chance. And that's more sour grape, shall we say? But it, it, I think it was it was taken away from us, and uh, and we were stuck with extra time, and we'd used up substitutes, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and and that was the end of that.
1: Yeah, I think the one thing we would have taken in as a championship with us was momentum. I think that's one one thing that's so hard to get in football, either to stop momentum going that way, the wrong way, or to stop it escalating the right way. And we had momentum us as a group of players, and if two or three or four more players had come in, we would have kept that momentum with us, and that would have got us, I think, everyone always says we would have got relegated. I don't think we would have got relegated if we'd gone up. I think, as I say, with the group of players we had and our sort of belief in each other at the time, we we could have survived in that league. And it, once you survive one season, the next season, like Blackpool or anyone else that's done it, you never know where you're going to end up. But after one thing, we would have survived.
0: Just, I'm aware we're going on with time and things like that. So if I can just fast forward a few years, Ken, to when I was... Decision came that they wanted to move on from the football club, and how difficult a scenario was that. I mean, let's first of all look to the there was obviously the failed takeover with the monkey hangers, and what were the factors behind that, and how dangerously close, if that's the right phrase, did the club get to to being taken over by TMH?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, the decision uh, to stop, shall we say, investing in Hartlepool came it was mainly driven by the oil price crash in the mid-2000s, but also as, as moving out of Yemen, right? Because it was all right justifying a loss-making venture, such as a football club, um, when, when when we were getting plenty of money. But when the money was, was short, very hard to justify why we should keep paying into a loss-making venture because the days had gone where we were justifying it based on you know, getting sponsors, entertaining clients. It, it really became a, a, a nice to have, and yeah. but not a necessary to have. And so each year, as you know from the budgets meetings and that, it was becoming harder and harder to uh, justify, and we had to start cutting costs and all that. And eventually, um, we just had to make the decision that, that we've got to put it up for sale. Uh, I didn't really want it to put it up for sale, but, you know, I, I, I couldn't do it without the backing. And the, and the other thing, of course, is that the, the Football League and the council uh, wouldn't give the lower clubs any more money. I mean, if if, if they paid the, 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 the rate now, the Football League, if they paid what they pay now then to us, it would have been enough to, to, to cover the budget, as you well know. You know, we only needed half a million or something. And, and if we were getting, you know, a million or something off the football league or 750,000 or whatever they get these days, um, you know, we would have been able to justify keeping the club because it wouldn't have be costing Iowa anything. And we just had Iowa as a backup uh, to, to jump in. Um, so the, the days were over um, probably around about 2015, 14, 15, whenever. And we had to look for a, for a buyer and we, and we got introduced to these people who seemed quite reasonable. Again, naive, we didn't know there was people out there who football clubs and ripped them off. Uh, and and they ticked the boxes, and we thought everything was fine, and they convinced the Football League. And then um, we got a call from the club uh, after we'd sort of agreed in principle to take over, but it didn't get signed, sealed, and delivered until the end of January. That the, um, One of the guys had, had told Sarah, Sarah Smith, Sarah Rountree, um, I think on the Monday morning to move the takings from the Saturday game into their bank account. And Sarah went ahead and moved the money. And we found out because we could access Pool's bank account from Aberdeen. And our accountants were just going in on the, the Monday, Tuesday to make sure that the, the, uh, the funds had been deposited from the game. And they saw this entry of money going out and they contacted me, and, and I said, well, I don't know, where's it going? So I so called up Sarah, and she said, yeah, yeah, I've moved it out, Ken, just like they told me to do, and, uh, because they're now the new owners. And I went, no, Sarah, they're not the new owners. It's all done and dusted in principle, but it doesn't kick in until the end of January. And they have no right to take that money. And she said, oh, and of course, Sarah was absolutely devastated that she'd, she'd moved, You know, I don't know what it was, a lot of money out of the club into their bank account and so I contacted them and I said what are you doing and they went oh well you know now that we're owners we, we just need to consolidate the money I said no I said you, you can't just take the money out of the club and all uh, oh, right uh, well yeah well we'll pay it back and I said yeah you better pay back." So anyway, they paid that back and then uh, then the next thing I think it was Christmas Boxing Day New Year time uh, they moved money out again and so I, I sent Russ onto it to find out what the hell was going on. And of course, he was investigating that then. And we found out that these guys weren't all they were supposed to be. And we thought, how the hell can we get out of this? Because we've got the paperwork and everything's done. And uh, we were waiting on the Football League approval. So we actually went to the Football League and we said, don't approve it. And this is what do you mean, don't approve it? And we said, no, we don't want the deal to go through. And they said, but why? You've been bugging us for ages to get the deal done. And we told them the story and they went, oh, bloody hell. Well, we'll do a bit of investigation ourselves because these are in the days when the Football League weren't doing really massive investigation of, you know, who the owners were, know your owner. So they started looking into it and they found that a couple of these guys, um, it changed the names in the they, they, in in a previous life. They'd ripped off, I think it was Swindon or somebody. I don't know down south. So we thought, well, we better not. Um, we don't want to, you know, make too much public of this because we don't want all this getting out of what's going on. So we just spun the wheels and spun the wheels until the deadline day came, which was in January. And they were like, going, come on, guys, get it. So we said, well, no, and and the day came and went. And we said no, it's past now that date. We're not extending the deal. The deal's off, and uh, and and that's how close we came to um, giving them the club, whereby they would have just ripped us off completely. And then, of course, it was massive reorganisation because we were heading heading for relegation. If you remember, um, and we had to get everybody together, and 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 we did the great escape. Of course, that in January, everybody said Hartlepool's doomed, and uh, and everybody pulled out the stops and. Uh, so so yeah, that's where the the, um, the club really nearly died and we had to rescue it and, and come back in and uh, do what we could. And we had to actually put money in to, to, to support it and in in, we had no money for it because the, on paper within Iowa's books, the club was sold in January. So it was a massive uh, event that to, to get back on board, get the money back in, get everybody G'd up with relegation looking over everybody's heads. And uh, the stuff that went on behind the scenes was was was, was unbelievable. Never mind on the pitch. And uh, and anyway, we 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 stopped getting relegated, and then moved to the next phase of going to um, the next the next guy. So we thought we're okay, but didn't turn out as well either. But it, at least they weren't immediately taking the money out of the club. So it was um, it was sad days, guys. Um, we wanted to leave in a really good matter, hand it on to somebody. A, a bus that was driving you know it drove itself uh, everybody was geared up how to look after money how to justify money i mean the new owners couldn't have had it better and and, and shall we say they blew it to the i think really to the to, to the sadness of the whole office because everybody in the office was willing to carry on running the club how how it was run and it would have been efficient as long as somebody could put the the deficit in and I think everybody just saw the whole world disappearing, and and, and that's what's happened. So it's very disappointing, guys. Yeah. Sad times, yeah.
0: Does it suddenly? Does it? ending
2: to eighteen years.
0: Does does it suddenly the current situation? Seeing Hartlepool outside of the football league now.
2: Yeah, it's very sad. And um, you know, I don't know. I take a bit of the responsibility in a way because I didn't want to sell the club. And if if we could have just had things a bit different. Um, I think after we did sell the club, the, the the Football League announced that I think the season after they were going to give the clubs more money.
0: Yeah, I, remember
2: I told you them in Aberdeen, plug that into the computer, this extra money. And I tell you, we you know, one more season and, and, and we wouldn't have had to give up the club. Um, just simply because the Football League were putting more money in. Uh, and, and yeah, it, it, it was sad. And, and I do feel that although we hoped And we tried to leave the club in fantastic condition, which we did financially in in the way it was run. Um, Unfortunately, it it didn't work out that way. So, yeah, it it was a very sad ending in the sense that I'd love to have passed the club on to owners who actually did what they promised they were going to do. In fact, let's go back to the very beginning. If they did what we did for Harold, if they'd done for Iowa, the same then the club would be in good shape and unfortunately it didn't turn out and once the deal is done we could do nothing about it we really tried to influence it from the outside and we saw some of the things they were doing and we tried to tell them but the um the event she just basically said listen we're running it how we want and and the rest is history and so jpx went and then the new guy came in and i thought he was going to do well and i think his heart was there you know and and i'd had some meetings with him and uh, unfortunately, got rele-
0: right yeah, somehow,
2: yeah. yeah. And, and we got relegated and of course he has to pull his money out, you know, or, or, or stop funding it as well as he could. But that's a vicious circle, isn't it? Once you get relegated and you, you pull out the money and you lay people off and it, it, it's very sad. And, and I think it's a very difficult time now for the club because, you know, not only has the club been hit by relegation, it's been hit by funding withdrawal for the youth. Um, It's been uh, hit by funding withdrawal from the owners uh, for various reasons. And now we've had COVID and the economic crisis that's in the world now and it's probably going to get worse in the world, um, where even if it was IOR, I think we'd be in a lot of pressure of, well, it's a luxury we can't afford. Um, And and I'm fearful for the future of the club, never mind... uh, Hoping they'll get promoted, I'm, I'm hoping that they survive. It's a very, very sad cycle, guys. Over 20 years.
0: Well, Mick, fantastic to hear from uh, from Ken and and, and I mean, like said, go back on some of those memories. You know, at the time it was it was all very serious and there was a big healthy respect with, with Ken and, and as he was chairman. But just to have that little informal conversation and look back like that,
1: brilliant. Yeah, it was quite insightful, wasn't it? It was quite. Um, you see that he sort of fell in love with being the chairman of the football club as well. And it, it, you can hear when he talked and how much it actually meant for him and how he didn't want to give up the football club but because of financial issues within the oil business. It, he was more, he more or less happy, you know, and, and you can hear in his voice, it, it niggles with him a little bit and, and especially how the football club's gone on for them. But it, it was very insightful. I mean, as I said before, I, I didn't ever have long conversations with Ken Um, Used to say the odd joke now and again, and we didn't get to spend a lot of time with him when we were playing. As he was a chairman of the football club, who was morning chairman, afternoon, that sort of conversation. So, yeah, lovely to hear his side of it and his thoughts on Hartlepool in general in the Iowa Times.
0: Well, thanks again for a a great night chatting about Hartlepool and those memories. Uh, We'll leave it there, everyone, but we'll uh, try and do our best to top that with another guest next week on Switcher Play. But that is the end of episode seven. And with it being Ken Hodcroft, there's only one way to end it. There will be no further comment at this time.